If you have your Bibles open, I'd invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 40 as we continue to read. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, don't, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, This is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is with you, when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the utmost basket there were all sorts of baked food for the pharaoh, but the birds were eating out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, This is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days pharaoh will lift up your head from you, and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to its position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Let's lift up our prayer together. Our Father, we thank you so much for every heavenly blessing we have received freely from you through Christ Jesus. We thank you for the eternal hope that you have welcomed us into as you have called us to be in Christ. And as the body of Christ, the church, Lord, we ask you that you would knit us together We ask that you would glorify yourself through our activity and that you would sanctify us. Lord, we know that you promised to sanctify us by the renewing of our minds. And so this morning, as we come to your word, we ask you that you would change and transform our thinking so that we would be remade, renewed in the image of your Son. 
and that we would walk in all of the character that you possess completely. Don't leave us as we are now, we ask. As you transform us, Lord, we pray that we would begin to live in obedience. Give us further fervor and excitement for doing your work. And Lord, may we care for one another appropriately, learning to love one another. And so this morning, Lord, we lift up those uh, who are in any sort of need, who are suffering in any situation. Lord, we ask that you would give us opportunity to minister to one another, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work among your church, giving comfort, and that we would look to you as our sole supply, our true provider in every meaning of that word. And so, Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be with us this morning to illuminate what your Scripture has revealed and that we would walk in the truth that it reveals to us. In Jesus' name we ask for His glory. Amen. The entire uh, Joseph narrative is concerned with the large dream Joseph had at the beginning in chapter 37, the dreams of provision and elevation for Israel's family and of rulership for Joseph. But here in chapter 40, we meet two subordinate dreams. The narrator does not linger with them. They are only instruments of the larger dream. These dreams are almost unrelated to the well-being of Israel, other than they they are given by God as steps along the way to bring about the fulfillment of Joseph's dream. So you got one big dream, and the, the climax of the story is that the dream is fulfilled. And this comes in the meantime, it connects the story, it develops the story, but there's something important here as well. Sharing the sense of divine destiny, which was granted to him by God through the dreams, and living out the faithful obedience to his father caused Joseph's brothers to throw him into a pit and later to sell him into slavery. And then in the last chapter, when he refused to compromise his morality and sense of duty, but was a faithful servant in Potiphar's house, he was falsely accused and cast yet again into a pit. And so our text this morning contains a a third and final setback for Joseph Despite the fact that he helps a fellow prisoner, that prisoner fails to reciprocate when he has the chance to help Joseph in return. And so with this chain of three aggravating setbacks for Joseph comes also three pairs of dreams. First, the dream to Joseph, now to the cupbearer and baker, and finally to Pharaoh in the following chapter to show that God sovereignly controls all destiny. So, like I said, in a lot of ways, this chapter is is the middle bit, progressing the Joseph story towards its climax. And I meditated on this uh, chapter for about four days before I even started seeing it come together, and I want to explain a little bit about how that process happened for me so that in your own Bible study, you can understand it. But we see, that's not all we see here. It's not just the connective bits. We see Joseph suffer for doing good. 1 Peter 3.19, according to God's will. But we also see the way in which God's covenant faithfulness calls and brings His own people to faithfulness through remembrance. So, remember that word, remember. 
as we begin to work through the passage. Verse 1, sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against the Lord, the king of Egypt, and Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and put them into, in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And so, as we saw, the text begins sometime after this, meaning Joseph's imprisonment. By the end of this episode, Joseph will have been in slavery and then prison for over 10 years, and he won't be released until 13 years have passed of his life. There's evidence both here and in Psalm 105, which we'll look at a little bit later, that Joseph was not only confined, but bound with chains in Pharaoh's dungeon. It's also interesting to note here that the prison pit was situated on the estate of Pharaoh's captain of the guard, which just happens to be Potiphar's title. So Joseph is still in Potiphar's house, though he has experienced a significant loss of reputation, control, power, and comfort. All of our our basic human desires have been stripped from Joseph in some way or another. And so where once where Joseph, Genesis 39.4, had attended Potiphar's needs and oversaw his entire estate, now Potiphar assigns him to do the same in prison for two of the Pharaoh's most important officers. And so there's three things that we should see here before I introduce the first main point. First is that Joseph continued to serve faithfully in Potiphar's house, even after suffering a pretty serious demotion, because he was faithfully serving the Lord. He exemplified the command to God's people in Colossians 3, to 24, which says, bondservants, or slaves is an appropriate translation, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Second, the narrative reveals that Joseph was experiencing a most unfavorable and discouraging time and place in his life. For the most part, Joseph is described as fairly stoic, but later he'll protest his innocence, and in verse 14, he pleads with the cupbearer, get me out of this house. He's been in this house for a while, first as a slave and now as a slave in prison. Taken at age 17, Joseph will not be released until he's 30 years old. There's so much here about a man of God God's chosen one being in a terrible situation for an extended period of time. If you think of uh, going into slavery, imprisonment at age 17 and not getting out until 30, you're like, well, most of my life is gone. Third, we see that God was beginning to move to bring about Joseph's release and ascendancy, even though it was not yet known to Joseph. So God's already at work here, we'll see. Ultimately, the closing of prison doors is designed by the Lord to open palace doors, but only in His timing. 
And so despite the disagreeable conditions and discouraging situations in which Joseph found himself, he continued to serve faithfully in whatever responsibilities he was given. And while we can certainly learn from Joseph's example of patience and obedience here, it is even more important that we begin to see and learn the reason for such patience and faithfulness. God was beginning to work. And this will be developed throughout the remainder of our text, but for now we have an incomplete message in the first major point this morning. Number one, God's people must demonstrate unwavering faithfulness in the midst of suffering and discouraging situations. But the text continues, verse 5, and One night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled, so he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. These royal inmates were responsible in Pharaoh's house to safeguard two of the ways a potential assassin could strike at Pharaoh, his wine and his bread. These were very trusted servants, entrusted with close access to Pharaoh, putting them each in a position where they could play a sinister role in a conspiracy against him. And because of their similar positions, the cupbearer and the baker, it is likely that they were suspected of being involved in such a conspiracy. But offenses against Pharaoh could take many forms, and they could have been merely guilty of just displeasing the king in any conceivable way. This is a place where the king has rule and whatever he says goes. And so either way, it seems they are being held while awaiting the king's judgment. They don't immediately tell Joseph of their dreams because in the ancient Near East, dream interpretations were sought from experts. There were men who were trained in techniques and methods of the day, even textbooks, ancient textbooks on how to interpret dreams. Anthropologists have found dream books belonging to both Egyptians and Babylonians, which contained samples of dreams and the symbological keys to their interpretation. It was believed that the gods communicated generally through dreams. And so the cupbearer and baker are troubled, not because the dreams are so ominous, but because they believed they had received a communication which they were helpless to understand while they were in prison and had no access to Pharaoh's professional dream interpretation squad. Few would have their insights and explanations prized so highly as the king's necromancers, those who would interpret the messages of the gods given through such dreams. But this narrative makes a a very different claim. The dream is a gift, and the interpretation is a gift, not done by a special skill or technique, but by the power of God freely given to this particular man. The dreams found here are no more complex than the first dreams, which were readily understood by all of Israel's household. Never in Scripture does one of God's chosen people fail to understand the meaning of a dream which is given by God. And so Joseph understands the dreams that are given to him. His father understands the dreams that are given to him. His brothers understand the dreams that are given to him. And now he's told these dreams, and and he understands 
And Joseph does not hesitate to express his faith and conviction that all true interpretation comes only from God and that the message of God belongs to those whom He has chosen. And so like Jesus, Luke 2, 46-47, who as a young boy sat among the teachers at the temple, amazing them with his wisdom, so also Joseph sat in the place of those considered to be the educated and wise and offered to mediate God's message to them. Verse 9, so the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. This first dream is a celebration of threes. The vine has three branches, and its growth is described with three verbs. It budded, blossomed, and ripened. Pharaoh is mentioned three times, as is his cup. And finally, the cupbearer describes his own actions with three verbs, I took, I pressed, I placed. There's no indication that Joseph needed to pray for an explanation or wisdom to understand, only that as one qualified by God, he immediately understood God's message. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head, which in this context signified a restoration of favor and position. Now, as happens quite often in ancient literature, and especially in the Bible, there is a symmetrical arrangement to this entire chapter in order to emphasize its main point. And so, before the baker's dream is presented, Joseph pleads with the cupbearer in what becomes the central focus of our entire passage. I want to bring it up in conjunction with the third and final point of the sermon at the end, but let's look at it briefly now in order to make the appropriate connections. Verse 14. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. And so Joseph appeals to the cupbearer's kindness, and this is a word we've been looking at in Genesis, is the hesed, or covenant faithfulness. He's asking him to be true to him to respond with the same sort of kindness that he's been shown. He twice uses the verb remember, which is concealed by the English translation in our ESV. The second use is rendered in ours, mention. So, a translation intent on displaying this central focus of remembering would read, uh, only remember me and please do me the kindness to remember me to Pharaoh. This word is doubled up here in the sentence. The word remember is it's quite a lot like the terms listen or hear in the Bible. When the Bible says listen or hear as a command, it, it almost never means just to perceive by the auditory senses. It, it means to pay attention, to hear and obey. In the same way, remember doesn't just mean to retain the memory, but to act in accordance with that memory. The cupbearer will see the Pharaoh in just three days. It's not as though Joseph is worried that he's, uh, you know, 
has Alzheimer's and, and he might forget about Joseph in such a short time. Joseph's request is that the cupbearer reciprocate his kindness with kindness in return and bring Joseph's situation up to the king. The, the double mention of remember as the central focus of the narrative here is echoed by its usage in the final statement of the, of the chapter, verse 23, yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. And together, these mentions will guide us to understanding the main point of the story. A second dream then sandwiches this central statement, verse 16. When the baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket were, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Joseph is just as quick with this second interpretation as he was with his first. And his prognosis begins with the exact same phrase in Hebrew. So we don't really get the pun, so it has to explain it to us. But he just says, in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. And the context of each of the different stories uh, tells us what's going to happen to these guys. Hanging was not typically a form of execution in the ancient world. Uh, but a way to expose someone to particular dishonor was to have them beheaded and then for the body to be hung, exposed to public view, and then for the insects and birds to devour them. And so his head was lifted up from him in a different meaning of the same term, and then he uh, was hung out, exposed to dishonor as someone who had, had uh, committed a particularly grievous crime. And so the dreams have nearly opposite outcomes. The cupbearer will be restored to favor, while the baker will suffer a dishonorable demise. Both have their heads lifted. Verse 20, 20, sorry. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. The, the predestined day is Pharaoh's birthday, which in Egyptian text often refers to the anniversary of his kingship. They didn't often celebrate the day of his birth as much as they celebrated the day which they believed to be his birthday as a god. And on this day, the kings would often grant mercy, as in the case of the cupbearer, or as in the case of the baker, inflict judgment. The death here speaks of the harsh realities of life in ancient Egypt with a king who was a law unto himself. But it's, it's amazing, it is right here at this point of conveying the apex of the Egyptian king's power, that we are confronted with the understanding that all such powers exist and are, are allowed to continue existing only according to God's good pleasure. The outcomes here announce, as does Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. 
You see, Pharaoh believes that he has made a decision about who will die and who will live and that those things are in his hand, but God has already announced it and made it known through Joseph. The dreams were not trivial. They were messages from God demonstrating his sovereign authority over success and failure, bounty and famine, and life and death. And so, this narrative is not finally about dream interpretation. The dream is a vehicle to express this sovereignty of God. The chapter doesn't tell us how we should go about as Christians trying to interpret dreams or what symbols stand for what. I used to have many recurring dreams and people would tell me what they meant. The dreams uh, function as servants of the larger dream. The promise dream which God granted to Joseph. The dreams tell of what God in His rule will do regardless of Pharaoh's rule. They claim that only God knows the future and only God decides the future. God had revealed Himself to Joseph, but Pharaoh and his Egyptian magicians were in the dark. Our first main point this morning was, number one, God's people must demonstrate unwavering faithfulness in the midst of suffering and discouraging situations. The second main point then adds to this statement. Number two, those who entrust themselves to the sovereign plan of God will demonstrate unwavering faithfulness in the midst of suffering and discouraging situations. You see, we get a command, and that's, that's all good, but how does that come about in our lives? Well, how do we live faithful in God's house? How do we live through suffering, trials of many kinds? We must entrust ourselves to the sovereign plan of God. Now, it is important that you see here that this is not yet the gospel. We haven't yet got to the gospel in Genesis 40, and that's important. Points 1 and points 2 are both, both true. They are both biblical truths, but they are not yet paired with good news. Yes, believers should live lives of faithful obedience in trials of many kinds. Yes, believers should entrust themselves to God, and doing so would produce the fruit of faithful service despite suffering and discouraging situations. But you have to see that this is all still entirely reliant on us. If the messages today were, you must live faithful despite suffering and discouragement, and if you will entrust yourself to God, you will live faithful despite suffering and discouragement, that would not be the gospel. This would still be putting the onus on us. Whenever we are reading or studying Scripture, we must keep digging until we get to good news. And this is what took me so long this week in understanding this passage. Uh, this is why I'm not always a fan of rapid Bible reading plans, because I think it is so important in our own study that we settle in and meditate on the text until we have perceived the gospel. Where's the good news? I don't know if I should do this at this point. It might mess up my, my order of things, but I want to explain to you a little bit about how I came to this this morning, because I didn't immediately recognize the patterns in the literature and the way that the focus, focus point came on to these middle verses, so it didn't become immediately apparent to me that this was a passage about remembrance. But as I have come to Scripture and as I've been training myself to see the gospel, I go through uh, some questions in my head uh, when, when I'm asking myself, where's the gospel in this passage? 
And to, to see the gospel, especially in places where it doesn't become readily, aver- uh, readily apparent, is to start to ask questions like, what are we supposed to do? You know, that, that's, that, and we've, asked, we've answered that question. We should serve faithfully despite suffering and trials of many kinds. But the, the second question is, why don't we do it? And the answer to the second question is, is always the same, because we're sinners and not God. And so we're not the righteous ones who are always doing righteous things. We're sinners who are saved by grace. And so the, the third question is, what did Christ do? See, we haven't come to the gospel until it's a message about something that has been done on our behalf. It's not good news until it's good news. If it's just telling me something I should do better, if it's telling me to pull up my bootstraps and try harder, or to have more faith, or to entrust myself further, or to do an act of obedience, that's all well and good. It's true, but it's not the good news. And, and last, I ask myself, once we know what Christ has done, how can we do it in Christ? And so I want, this brought me to the same conclusion as we see that the main thing that stands out here is something that someone does wrong is that this cupbearer does not remember Joseph. It's, uh, there's significance put on this fact that uh, Joseph is left in the pit. What should we do? Well, we should remember. And we're going to see that God remembered Joseph, which causes Joseph to remember God's faithfulness. So the final verse, verse 23 Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. For Joseph, still chained in the pit, there is quite a lot riding on the kindness of this cupbearer, but he does not reciprocate the kindness shown to him. And the narrator emphasizes the cupbearer's transgression by using two verbs to describe it. He, he not only initially ignored his obligation to Joseph, but then he forgot The next chapter tells us that it will take two whole years for him to be reminded. The cupbearer has quickly forgotten, even as Egypt will quickly forget, Exodus 1.8, after Joseph's death, that God had rescued them from famine through this man. Others may have forgotten Joseph, but God did not. There were sufficient reasons here for him to have been discouraged and to have abandoned all hope of ever rising to any position of authority, as the the God-given dream had promised him. But here, in the middle of his worst situations, God remembered Joseph, and He graciously provided Joseph with an amazing occasion to remember the truth of His promise. God was beginning to reveal Himself through two more dreams. And as he received the interpretation of these dreams, and when the dreams were fulfilled exactly as he had said, it would have been a tremendous confirmation from God. The psalmist writes, Psalm 105, 16 to 19, that he, that is God, summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread. He had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His neck was put in a collar of iron. Until what he said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. Here, 
At the time of greatest need, God provides evidence of the veracity of His Word. Do you see this? Joseph gets a dream right at the beginning, a promise from God that he's going to rule. And now, with these dreams in the middle coming true quickly, Joseph is reminded that God's Word is true, that the dream that comes from God will come to pass. Here in the time of greatest need, God just gives evidence. Even though Joseph will, according to the plan of God, rot in prison for two more years wearing manacles and an iron collar, his God-given faith is up to the task because of the faithfulness of God in providing this important reminder. And to quote the spoken word of Art Azurdia, faith is not merely an optimistic outlook on life with a kind of spirituality attached to it. Faith is not a holy hoping for the best. Faith is not a call to believe in things when common sense tells you not to. It is not a leap into apparent nothingness. It is a word that speaks of reasoned, careful, deliberate, intentional thought upon God and His promises. And faith does not fail because it is a gift from God and because it is stewarded by God in us by careful reminder of His past and present faithfulness to us. We will trust in the future faithfulness of God that all of His plan will come to fruition because we are shown through His mercy and grace and continuing as He shows us and reminds us that He is faithful and He is true. When we come to God's Word and we see story after story of God's faithfulness to our people, story after story of the truth of God that He never tells a lie and what He promises always comes to pass. And so Joseph's faith is fostered and bolstered by God who gave it to him. And this brings us to the final point of the message this morning, the point which brings the gospel to bear. Number three, God provides His people continued occasions to remember His faithfulness. To remember is one of the most common commands in Scripture. God's people are are consistently commanded, remember, remember what God has done. Our sin is that we're so prone to forget, just as Egypt would forget the rescue enacted by God through Joseph and would come to persecute Israel and be judged for it. Later in the wilderness, Israel would do the exact same thing. They would fail to remember the saving work of God, and they would need to be reminded time and again of God's faithfulness to them. God, it is said many times in the Bible, remembers His people. See, we're following this track that that I'm trying to teach you here. What should we do? Well, we should remember. We don't do it because of who we are as fallen sinners, but God does it on our behalf. God remembers us. That is the good news. When we fail to remember God's goodness, God remembers His covenant faithfulness to us, and this is good news, and He causes us then to remember His faithfulness and the truth of His promises. This is how we are then able to do it in Christ. How are we able to remember? Not because we can do it on our own, but because God who remembers us brings us to remember His faithfulness and His truth. And so now let's put these three points together in a final statement before we close. 
God causes His chosen ones to remember His covenant faithfulness, which brings them to entrust themselves to His sovereign plan, which will cause them to demonstrate unwavering faithfulness in the midst of suffering and discouraging situations. This is what Paul writes in Romans 16, 25 to 27. In this doxology, one of my favorite doxologies of Scripture. Now to Him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. This is our hope, church. This is the good news this morning. Yes, we should be obedient through struggles and discouragement and trials of many kinds. How will we do that? We must entrust ourselves. The God has set the end in place, He knows exactly how it's all going to work out, He is sovereign. How will we entrust ourselves? He is able to strengthen you. He's committed Himself to strengthen you, church. This is the good news. And He's able to strengthen you in order to bring about the obedience of faith. So God who gives faith which this morning, I haven't really thought this through super well, so don't hold it against me, but he gives faith, and it's the, it's the seed of obedience. God gives faith. He stewards faith. He brings us to remember, and we will obey. And he will get all the glory as we are sanctified. We will grow in obedience and be like Joseph, faithful in his house despite discouragement, terrible situations, discouraging situations, trials, and God will get the glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it speaks deep to the heart of our need. It seems like such a simple thing to be only required to remember. If we would just remember you, remember your goodness, remember your promise, and remember that you are truthful, we would be utterly transformed. But God, we fail even in this. And we go about living our lives as though your sovereignty is not secure. We go through our lives living as though the end is not already decided. We go through our lives living like we are not those who will receive the inheritance of Jesus Christ. We need to remember. And when we do not, we praise you and thank you, glorify you this morning because you do. And not because we have deserved it, but because you have chosen and have expressed your covenant to us through the blood of Jesus Christ, we are secure. And you, in your faithfulness, remind us. We ask that you would do this. 
more and more, that every chapter and verse, every song we sing, every conversation with believers, every uh, thing we see that is, is wonderful and beautiful in nature would remind us of Your faithfulness, remind us of Your goodness, and we would live in remembrance of that. Transform us in this way for the glory of Christ, we pray, as You sanctify Your church to be a spotless bride for Your return. Jesus' name. Amen.